So our goal and mission is to make insurance shopping transparent and simple and really give the confidence of the end consumer to make the right decisions about their insurance and coverage on their own by leveraging artificial intelligence. We think that the power of data would allow for people to have even more confidence about their choices. And people love to buy, they just don't like to be sold. And this industry has been has been thriving on the idea you have to sell insurance. Insurance is not bought, it's sold. Well, we are trying to change that concept. Welcome to the Driver Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and David Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, an obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Najina Zakaria. Najina is the founder and CEO of Insurify, the largest online insurance marketplace in the country. After getting into a minor car accident while getting an MBA at MIT, her insurance spiked. What followed was hours of jumping from different carrier sites, answering the same questions over and over again, both online and on the phone. Insurify aims to solve this problem by reinventing the way people search, compare, buy insurance, and manage all of their policies online. It's a technology platform powered by artificial intelligence that provides fast, accurate, personalized recommendations and quotes to help you make confident decisions about your insurance coverage and carrier. Prior to founding Insurify, Sinajina was a B2B sales leader for many years, which, which included a stint at Gartner. While at Gartner, she established and grew three lines of business, each with millions of dollars of annual revenue across the USA and Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. In this interview, we, we get into what life was like growing up in, in Bulgaria, what prompted her move to the US, her work experience prior to Insurify, and all things Insurify and entrepreneurship. And so, without further ado, my interview with Najina Zakaria. Najina, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chase. Very nice to be uh, here with you, and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. So I want to start this at the beginning. Um, you grew up in Bulgaria, right? Yeah, communist Bulgaria. And whereabouts? So I was born in a middle-sized town called Pazovjik uh, in Bulgaria. And I grew up in, we could call it, um, middle-class family. Um, my parents, my mother was a principal in school and my father was an engineering manager. But at uh, that time, as, uh, as we, we used to call it, everybody was equally poor. <laughs> so <laughs> right. there was not much differentiation in what type of job you were. You were kind of more or less on the same level with everybody else. Right, right. Because of the, the communism, right? Yeah. 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 So it was a, a very safe and sort of calm um, environment growing up. Um, also surrounded with a lot of love and, and, and a great family. Uh, but, you know, you, you don't know what you're missing because you don't know better. So you're a happy person as a right. result. Right, yeah. And how would you 
how would you describe the culture of of Bulgaria for for someone who you know never heard of the country or hasn't been there before? Bulgaria is a very uh, family oriented culture as well as very social culture, uh, which I think is is um, similar to all of the southern southern European countries in Europe. I mean, there is a lot of focus on family, but also on friendships and. Um, and people do get together and go out very frequently. So it's actually a fun place to live. Very fun place. So much so that I have a lot of friends that came to the States and then they really wanted to go back because they really missed that aspect of, of, um, of leaving. Interesting. Okay. And were you, were you very entrepreneurial when you were growing up in Bulgaria? Like, were you the the kid who always has who has like the journal of ideas of potential business ideas and so on so uh because i grew up and uh, during communism nobody owned any private businesses during that time so the concept of entrepreneurship did not exist um mm-hmm. so i wouldn't even know that there was something like that that I could be working on. But um, it was a very interesting time because um, the communists collapsed in 19... Um, so, so it collapsed in 1989, and I was just starting high school at that time. And okay. then this hyperinflation hit in 1997, and I was like first or second year in, in university at that time. And it was a wild time because during that time basically the dollar uh, the the bulgarian left devalued a few thousand times so everybody lost their savings so it was a scary scary time and i i don't think that i even had the the opportunity to be thinking about businesses at that time because it's more as like okay you have to get it through school you have to make enough money to be able to go through college um and and then do the best that you can. But it was, it was, there was so much uncertainty in the environment because of that hyperinflation that, um, yeah, it was survival time. Wow. Yeah, so because of the, the environment, you, the whole concept of entrepreneurship just was foreign to you. I mean, there was not much of a foreign business during the post-communist era. Uh, there was a very long period where there was nothing to purchase from any store. So people were online and my parents lost all of their savings during hyperinflation. So I, I ended up starting university and I was fortunate to be with a state scholarship. So I didn't have to pay a dime for my education. And I also had scholarship for high grades which was addition to that but that didn't cover all the expenses for living in a different city which was in the capital so i ended up starting a summer job and then i continued working full-time throughout my um university so and and i got i got into my one of the first jobs that i got was a software development company that was opening just the very first offshore centers um, in Bulgaria because the communist countries have always been great with super strong mathematicians and super strong engineers. So they had connected with a Bulgarian professor in Denver 
who was advising the company and he helped establish the office in, in, in Sofia. So that's how I got into the startup world in one way or another. Uh, right. Although it was a little bit different being in an offshore company. Um, but um, just towards 2000, um, which was probably four years into me working through school, um, things started to happen in terms of like companies started to open up and local entrepreneurs established businesses and established their own software companies and the internet was coming um, up. So it was the era of growth and opportunity. So at that time, I started thinking about potentially starting my own business. Obviously, it, was, um, it felt a little bit scary being still in school and thinking about ideas, but I had been exposed um, long enough to these stuff the startup world while studying um to 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 have ideas of what um what that could look like so yeah so it was an interesting time yeah so where was that first job were you doing software development for the company or were you in a different role so i started as a technical writer uh, for the first year and then I moved to what we call account management or project management so I was in the last three years um, working in Bulgaria right before moving to the US I was a project management uh, and I was running basically software development projects um, with engineering teams and then I um, I I was able to upsell a lot of our accounts while working in Bulgaria as a project management um, manager and I went to my boss and I said maybe I should be doing this full time <laughs> because I'm doing such a good job with it on the side what could I do if I'm actually focusing on it 100% of the time so I was the only salesperson in the local office in Bulgaria who started closing deals all around Europe and also sometimes in the US from Bulgaria um, which was fascinating yeah so it sounds like you enjoyed the the sales part of the job much more than you did the the, tech, the technical writing part. It was uh, yes, absolutely. I think project management uh, gives you a lot of responsibility, especially if you are young, like right out of college. Or in fact, I was in a few years within my university degree because I was running back and forth to take classes, the ones that were not allowed to be missed. Um, so it was very hectic times, but um, definitely I found that I had a gift for sales and I didn't even know that I was sales at that time. I just knew that there was, I had a gift of persuading people to do and uncovering new opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so, so when, so when did you start considering moving to the U.S. and kind of why did you ultimately make that move? So um, I think around uh, 1997, 1998, um, companies like Microsoft and SAP and some of the largest software companies had already realized that the pool of opportunities could be expanded by poaching engineers from Eastern European countries. So a lot of my colleagues started leaving one at a time. Um, and many of them found jobs at Microsoft at that time. So they moved to Seattle. And 
that gave me an opportunity to sort of start thinking like maybe the whole idea of living in Bulgaria and moving to the US is not that completely foreign. So it could, there is a possibility there. There was also a trigger. I was um, a, a, a part of a small team of, of four people that were sent for additional training um, in California, in San Jose in 1998. Okay. Um, and that that was my first time traveling to practically a Western European country because at that time I haven't even traveled much because during communism, everything was closed more or less. So it was very much of an aha moment um, that inspired me to start considering opportunities. And initially I considered applying to to a second um, degree to get another master's because I had my master's of economics from uh, the university in Sofia. But then uh, the way it worked is that my company, uh, the more recent one, which was NetAge, now it's called Dynamo, and they recently sold to private equity, um, basically suggested that I move to the Boston office. So that's how I, I moved to, to Boston. And that's where Boston, why Boston is now home. Got it. And what, what really struck you when you first spent the kind of your first few days in California about about the US and, and all of the all of that. I remember the time um, I think uh, me and my colleagues had rented a car and we took on the road and we drove north so we were located in San Jose so we we ended up driving all the way to San Francisco and I remember seeing the skyscrapers for the first time at dark it was dusk so it was absolutely gorgeous breathtaking view and i still remember it very vividly because it was one of these things like wow this is so beautiful um yeah that was one of these aha moments i was Mm -hmm. i was impressed of uh, the development on the infrastructure the roads i mean we didn't have anything close to three four levels of highways um coming up uh in bulgaria so i think that was really fascinating um at that time i was 20 or 21 so it was very impressive right and you get your mba at mit is that's right is that right so that happened a little a few years later um okay so as it was uh, as i when i moved to to the us i worked uh, for that startup that I had uh, been working for a few years already in Bulgaria. And then I had the opportunity to be pulled into a company called AMR Research, which was later acquired by Gartner. And Gartner is the largest technology research uh, company in the world. So I was given the opportunity to um, built a few new business lines as part of AMR and then Gartner. So I initially was assigned to uh, build and expand um, chemical industry supply chain operations business. And then I um, saw an opportunity in Europe because AMR was struggling with building and expanding their business in, in Europe. So they had just made a decision to close the European office. And I went to my boss and I said, I can't believe we are doing that. Europe is such a huge channel, could be such a big channel for us. Um, We have to do something about it because there is so many manufacturing, top manufacturing companies um, in the world that are located in Europe. So I raised my hand and I said, let me do it from Boston. 
So he gave me the opportunity and that's how I restarted the AMR um, European business. Um, and during the Gardner acquisition, it all went to, to a whole new level because I was given a team of um, across 22 countries in Europe plus a bit of Middle East. So it, um, it was a very um, exciting times because I was, I, I was able to see what we can do with a team of very experienced salespeople that we can train to sell supply chain operational strategy research. And, and we were able to close um, a lot of the top uh, accounts and, and build it into one of the fastest growing channels in Europe. So, and, and in the world for Gardner, for that matter. Um, so the way I ended up in MIT was I, um, after spending almost seven and a half years between AMR and then the acquisition of Gardner, I was very much done with, um, done with corporate world. And I think that I, okay. one of the triggers is that I hit the glass ceiling. Um, basically, I knew that whatever I do, regardless of how, hard I worked, it, I, was, I was not gonna get any further. So I, that was the biggest trigger of me to say, okay, um, it's time to, for you to start a business, but I didn't feel it was right yet or I, that I was ready to just drop the corporate world and just do a new business. So I figured it might be a good opportunity to sort of take a break for a few years and just do another degree. And there was no better um, place for me than MIT. So I applied the last year at MIT and um, to my surprise, I got in. So it was <laughs> one of the best times of my life, um, to be honest, because the MIT community embraces innovation, entrepreneurship. So, and you have the opportunity to work and, and explore ideas with, um, a lot of the smartest um, kids in America. So it was a um, very uh, exciting time. And during that time, I was working on a different idea, which was very similar to some of the advice that we were giving a lot of the Fortune 500s as part of supply chain operational strategy optimization. It was um, very different. It was leveraging leveraging artificial intelligence for demand forecasting optimization. And then I had a minor accident after my first, um, my uh, December semester at MIT and my insurance spiked. And I was like, okay, now I have to find a way to find best savings. So I ended mm -hmm. up spending three and a half hours going from site to site answering the same questions over and over again. And then I will go to the carrier site and I will uh, talk to them on the phone and they will ask me the same questions I answered online. And I was like, wait a second, this is your own website. I just filled out the whole form. Why don't you have information to my records? So it was very underwhelming experience. And I remember the specific call with Geico, the Geico agent it was like, I already filled out the whole information on the Geico site. Why are you asking me all the other all the 30 questions I already did? So that combined with the fact that my husband um, is the chief technology officer at Kayak and having somebody so intimately involved into building what is today uh, over $5 billion company was very instrumental in building the foundation. So from there, 
I also um, was able to to get another co-founder taught, um, and and we started building the business. Wow. Okay. So it was that it was that minor it was that minor car accident, and then hours of filling out the same forms in every single insurance website that you could find, and just that inefficient that inefficiency was that inspiration for you to go down yeah. this path of starting an insurance technology company. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was so underwhelming and so dysfunctional that it was the trigger to drop my idea um, that I was working on for the previous semester at MIT and just say, let's see what we can do with, with insurance. It's big enough. It's huge. And nobody has seemed to have done anything about solving the customer um, shopping problem. Um, and there is huge amounts of savings that people can make because every carrier's underwriting criteria are vastly different. So it only takes five minutes to quote and you can save 500, in some cases, $1,000 off of your premium. And it's fascinating. Yeah. To me. And, and so do you start working on that while you're still at MIT? Yeah. Okay. So we actually applied to the business, to the 100K competition at MIT. And we want, we want um, basically, we were the semifinalists in the uh, web uh, category for the competition, which was another sort of confirmation of like, this is solid. Let's continue pushing with it. Um, and the beginning of InsureFi was actually very slow and to to my surprise it actually took a longer than i expected to sort of get things off the ground and the reason for that is that it's regulated environment but more importantly starting a marketplace is defined by getting a lot of partners on the same page and working with you from the very beginning and if you have one or two partners working with you, it's just not good enough. You have to have a comprehensive set of quotes that you can show to the end consumer. Otherwise, right. spending money on customer acquisition is just, just wasting money on customer acquisition. So it took us a while to convince carriers to want to work with us because, number one, some of them were seeing us as a threat. Um, many of them would be like, wow, fascinating. Um, tell me who else is in. And we're like, nobody. <laughs> Do you want to be in? <laughs> and they're like, when you have the first five in, call us. So it was more of a, very much of a chicken and neck type of a, of a discussion. And I remember doing heavy data mining on LinkedIn and hundreds of phone calls, one after the other, leveraging the MIT brand and the Kayak um, brand to sort of open the doors in terms of getting more people to talk to me. And I was very surprised that many people want to talk with me, but getting that contract was absolutely painful. Yeah. And finally, I was able to get an introduction to a very senior executive, um, a company uh, that we later started working with, um, which is one of the largest agencies in, in America. Um, and he was a former SVP at that company and then was consulting for another a major agency. So he was able to introduce us to that agency. And we started actually by leveraging their 15 contracts with carriers to be able to, to sort of present and show comparison. 
And as we were building up the volume, which we grew forex the first couple of years, year over year, um, we were able to sort of build enough of traction to be able to get the first carriers to want to work with us directly. And then we started getting our direct contracts with carriers. Got it. Got it. Okay. And these, just to clarify, these the partners that you mentioned are are these carriers like the Geico, the the General, Liberty Mutual, and so on. Yes. Yeah, so we work with almost all of the top twenty carriers, uh, except some of the captive carriers. Um, we work with Nationwide. We work and Nationwide is, by the way, an investor to the company as well. We work with Liberty Mutual. We work with um, the General and. Um, uh, most of the big ones yes Mm -hmm. and maybe for the just for the people listening provide a a quick overview of insurify today so insurify is a virtual insurance agent it's an online platform that is leveraging artificial intelligence to um, simplify and optimize the selection process as it relates to coverage recommendation and getting matched to the best carriers that best fit the user's profile. So our goal and mission is to make insurance shopping transparent and simple and really give the confidence of the end consumer to make the right decisions about their insurance and coverage on their own by leveraging artificial intelligence. We think that the power of data would allow for people to have even more confidence about their choices. And people love to buy. They just don't like to be sold. And this industry has been been thriving on the idea you have to sell insurance. Insurance is not bought, it's sold. Well, we are trying to change that concept. And we are also working very hard to change the concept of rebuilding trust as it relates to the customer and the agent, as well as the customer and the carrier, because we think that the customer-agent relationship is, there is an inherent conflict of interest there, because the agent makes more money when the user has a more expensive policy. So they don't have their best interest in potentially building or bringing the absolute best package for the end consumer. And our goal is to sort of um, to rebuild that and to provide for the, for the users with the absolute best selection options that are specifically defined based on their, their preferences, their risk right. uh, appetite, as well as their, their interest in, into all the other features and benefits that carriers provide. Because we're, it's not just about comparison shopping for price, but it's also about of customer experience, we have over 100,000 reviews on all the carriers that we quote on the platform. So we really try to build, to bridge the quantitative and the qualitative aspect of comparison shopping when it comes to, to insurance and really build out those unique features and benefits that carriers might provide for specific policies um, so that we can educate the customer of what they might be getting by leveraging one carrier or another. But our goal with Insurify is to be, I would love us to be the size of Amazon. We want to be the size of, you know, any one of the largest, biggest distribution 
websites in the world because the, the opportunity is massive and it's worldwide. Right. Right. And so what's, what's your revenue model for Insurefire? Like how, how do you make money? So we make money um, by getting paid for any policy that we closed. We focus on building and optimizing mostly the digital experience, but we also work very hard on bridging that gap. If a customer is interested in talking to the agent, so we make sure that all the information is fully preloaded um, before the customer makes a phone call or if they're requesting a phone call. Um, we also do um, a lot of things to be able to service customers through chat and leveraging NLP to make sure that we automate the process. But the core of our uh, revenue is really coming from people buying policies through the InsureFact platform. Okay, so it's sort of transactional based. Like, do you take a like a, is it like a percentage of each like quote? If, yeah, if so right? okay. we we would get paid um, on the first year commission, and then as long as we can retain the policy with InsureFact. So our goal is to to really um, uh, bring the best to both the, the end consumer, but also provide the carriers with, a, with the right, they call them the right book of business, meaning if a carrier has a specific preference for specific user profiles, we, then we are making sure that we are aligning with what types of customers they, uh, they like. And by doing that, we are also helping the end consumer because they don't get to be rejected at the end of the funnel because uh, from underwriting because they might not match quite the criteria that the carriers have. I see. Okay. And what are the biggest challenges facing the company as you look to scale over the next few years? So it's, um, things are changing so fast and we are growing so rapidly that I think that the biggest challenge is growing in a COVID environment. Um, we might be double the size of the company by the time we are back to the office and we have already wow. outgrown our office space. So I was in the process of looking for space uh, expansion um, in Kendo Square where we currently are. And, and then everything shut down. We were actually one of the first ones to say it's time to just move to work from home environment. So I think that hiring people without having met them would be an interesting part of like once we get back to the office because we would have hired so many people that we never met. Um, <laughs> so it will be a little bit of a different culture. Uh, I think that's, that's one piece um, that that is keeping me up at night. So we've been very fortunate to be able to build a culture that feels like family and people care about each other, care about the product, are sold about the vision and how big we can be. And, but they also care about helping each other and working for the better good. And they are friends outside of work, which, which is amazing. So I would love us to keep being that type of company. Uh, we value integrity, curiosity, and drive. And these are the things that are sort of the foundation of the culture and the way we, we build our team, as well as humility, because I think mm. there is a lot to be said about having the awareness that regardless of your background and experience, you will never be the expert on everything. So the power is in the, in the collective intelligence of the team. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And 
I was going to ask how COVID, this whole COVID-19 situation has impacted the business. Is the main, has the main impact been on, or the major impact, would you say, has been that hiring process? Uh, so it's, yes, I think that the, uh, so there are two aspects of it. Because our platform is focused about on helping people get the best deal about their policies, we have seen record number of searches throughout all the industries that we provide. So we currently have auto insurance, home insurance, and life insurance on the, on the website. And um, obviously life insurance searches are booming because people that thought that life is something that would be purchased from your heart and just because you like your uh, or you love your family, now they're really afraid about their lives and they're buying insurance at a much higher rate than has ever been before. But the other two verticals, we also see a spike, which is very interesting, but it's based on the fact that a lot of people are staying at home and has savings have never been more important because the job uncertainty is, is, is there and a lot of people feel insecure. So they're trying to sort of review all of their expenses. And then, Fortunately, or fortunately, insurance is one of the top three expenses in every household. So there is a great opportunity to save money on insurance. Life. Interesting. Okay. And have there been a lot of other insurance marketplaces that have sprung up since you launched? So there are just a couple that are trying to, to do something similar. Their business model is a little bit different because they originated with a call center. So they, they're focusing more on getting people to compare quotes and get the policies closed at the call center with a human, where Insurify's vision has always been of reinventing the shopping experience with artificial intelligence and data. So mm -hmm. we've, um, we actually have three times the share of online purchases compared to the industry average. Um, 67% of all policies on Insurify are sold online without a touch of a human, which is fascinating. We think that we can get that number to 80% um, because uh, the gap that remains is really because of poor um, customer experience on the carrier side. It's not because of lack of or interest of people to actually get it done on their own. Right. Interesting. And so you raised $23 million in January. Is that right? Yes. Almost 30 million, um, year to like since our launch. Okay. And what was the driving force behind that behind the most recent capital raise? Um, so we have done a lot, um, with almost nothing. I think that we are probably the only insurance startup that has closed over hundred million of premium. Actually, we closed at the time of closing, it was 150 million premiums uh, with almost no funding. Like we had just raised about 6.6 .6 million and that was a few years before that. So there, we have built so much with so little that it was a time for us to really significantly increase the team and just continue to expand but a much more aggressive rate because we already had built a good comprehensive experience on the site for auto insurance and we had to replicate the same for home, renters, pet insurance, life, and all these other verticals. Um, so it's time to, to put 
um, to, to sort of really accelerate. Yeah. And what's the, what's the legacy that you're looking to leave in your business? I think that the most important thing that we are working towards is helping the underserved and helping the customers that are either neglected or they're overpaying and overpaying with fees and with penalties because that's unfortunately for part of these industries how this industry is making money so we are trying to really make the the insurance world a better place for everybody not just for the privileged but also for the ones right. that, that savings for them is the most important thing so i'm hopeful that in the next few years we would really put everybody on the same kind of play uh leveling field and and make a platform that is able to empower the individual regardless of their background of their credit history of of their driving records to be able to get the best possible policy and to be able to find the best carrier that really cares about them as an individual and we want to be an integral part of building that bridge and making that um, connection and building that relationship with the customer that is um, really established on trust and established on um, like doing the right thing for the customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And shifting, shifting gears here a little, what, what are some of the aspects about entrepreneurship that you didn't expect when you first started building the business? I think the number one was how long it will take. <laughs> so you, you're, uh, it, it, when you're reading all the news on TechCrunch, you're like, oh, this startup raised that much money and this, stuff, this startup raised that much money. So you, you, you don't understand how much more work it actually took behind the scenes before they got to the place of making their huge rounds. So right. that was the number one. So our, our advice is be patient. The other key piece is that um, I also underestimated how difficult it is to do this in insurance because it's not a surprise that they didn't, that there wasn't a platform like ours for in 2013, 2014 when we started. The industry is very difficult. It is basically it has thrived based on uncertainty and confusion and complexity and lack of transparency. So having to change the fundamentals of how an insurance industry operates was a really tall challenge um, for us. And then the final piece is um, just have the humility that you don't know it all and it's just a process and you just have to do the right things and things will work out uh, at the end as long as you keep focused and um, keep um, sort of accepting feedback and changing if you need to change. But for us, fortunately, we haven't really changed the business model and what we, we said we will do from the very beginning. We have been fortunate to, to commit to, to that sort of to the platform experience and do what we said we will do, which is transform the online shopping experience for insured by. 
Yeah, and going back to kind of that idea of it taking much longer than anticipated. I think the the media and companies like like TechCrunch and others do a great job of giving people a false impression as to the rate at which companies raise tons and tons of money. Like X company raised, say, $50 million in six months or something. But before that six months, it took five years of building the infrastructure uh, and the operations and all of that to that went into it to be confident enough to actually go out and and kind of set set yourself on a path to actually raising the money so it makes sense yeah that's exactly um how it feels <laughs> when you're in the inside <laughs> yeah yeah and did you did you have mentors that you learned from as you're building the business like a list of mentors I think um, my best mentor, uh, fortunately for me, has been my husband because um, he's the smartest person in the world <laughs> for me. <laughs> and, and it's not just for me. He, he has four degrees from MIT, including a PhD in artificial intelligence. So having somebody with um, that, um, that experience and that level of intellect um, have been instrumental in terms of uh, my also personal and professional growth. Um, I also was fortunate to be connected to, to that consultant that later became our advisor and um, he has over 20 years of experience in the insurance industry. So he has been also a great mentor to me and giving me um, feedback, mostly advising me to be patient, <laughs> which is like, Ah, things are taking too long, especially right. in the beginning. <laughs> like we don't have years, <laughs> we have months, <laughs> we want to have weeks for things to be moving along. So he's been also a critical part in sort of building that, bridging the gap between the data science and the machine learning and what actually um, an insurance agent did us on and how carriers operate and also how they think. So these two people have been the most important um, in my life. Mm -hmm. And shifting gears here again a little, what what does your daily routine look like? And let's go pre-COVID. <laughs> it's okay. It hasn't changed much other than that I don't need to spend almost an hour driving back and forth. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now I have my home office and I'm fortunate to have a separated place um, to be able to uh, work in complete isolation, which has been great. Um, uh, Pre-COVID, I would uh, generally wake up between 6.30 and 7 and today is probably around the same time. Um, I generally start with a quick couple of coffees <laughs> and then... Um, and then I get get back to 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 my email and work and phone calls. Um, I usually uh, plan the night before of what uh, the plan for the day will be and what we want to get to. And um, I think that the the key, the most important thing right now is that um, big part of my day is actually interviewing people because we are so small that we still interview anybody. I'm still part of any anybody that makes it to the final stages of the interview process. So um, that's taking a, a big part of my of my routine. But um, generally I finish around 6.30 and I think the difference now is that we kind of take turns of who's gonna, 
cook dinner in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm fortunate that um, at least my daughter is old enough she, and she's very happy to cook too. So we, it's, uh, it's good to take a break from not being uh, the one only cooking. And so does my husband. So we are all taking turns. Um, it has not um, affected, in fact, it, it probably being in a little bit more isolated environment um, is able to help you focus more. You don't get distracted with side conversations, people asking for advice, everybody sort of figuring things out on their own. And they, you know, the, the path of like, let me ask about something is, um, there is another barrier towards it. It's not being right sitting next to each other in an open office environment. So it has, um, it has worked out great for us. I think the team is also um, doing just fine. Um, we are being very cautious about getting back to the office in this environment. So right. we will we'll only do it when we are very confident that there is no risk for the employees. Mm -hmm. And do you, do you see the potential of maybe a, a hybrid work from home or an office model? Or is your goal to go kind of back to, I guess, normal and like full-time traditional office? This is a great question. I don't know how I will feel if we stay in your, working from home for another three months. It will feel a little bit less unnatural that people can also do some, some days from home. I, I think it will. Um, I think these, the last two, three months have helped us understand and realize that as long as people have defined goals and priorities and they know the metrics um, that will measure the success of their work, you can work from everywhere. And it has shifted the uh, mindset of a lot of people, including mine. Um, I do think that there are a lot of benefits of working in a common office environment. And because of that, we are still only hiring in local Boston. So we are not going abroad and saying, oh, we'll just have a virtual work from home, work from everywhere uh, type of environment. So we are hoping to be back. It will be a bigger office. As I said, we are no <laughs> longer going to fit in this one, but going back in one way or another. I think that it will also depend on would the vaccines work once they're there, you know, just how safe it is generally um, to be back in an office environment. Right, right. And bringing this back to the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what's, what's been your driving force throughout your life? I think the most important thing for me has been making an impact. And I would like to make an impact to the world in a larger scale. Um, and I'm very excited about the product that we are building because we picked an industry that is, at that time was unpopular. Now it's uh, the next sexy thing that everybody wants to do business in, but, and really um, taking care of um, the underserved and the underprivileged is another key theme that is driving me. I'm super excited about building teams and growing the team. And we've been extremely fortunate and lucky, but also extremely selective in our hiring process. So that is also another, um, another aspect that is a driving 
force in, in, in the way I operate, in the way I work. And I think building an amazing product and amazing products is also uh, very fulfilling. Awesome. And then before we wrap this up here, uh, what are some parting thoughts or words of advice that you would like to leave the aspiring entrepreneur who's listening? Um, number one, be patient. Um, know that it will take longer than you think. Second, build the thicker skin. You will need it. <laughs> you will get rejected more times than you thought you, you, you would especially in the beginning and especially if you're a first time founder and especially if you're a female founder. Um, and number three, be focused in the very early stage. It's very easy to get distracted and to start building the next flashy things that looks cool and looks exciting. Um, don't build cool tech because it's cool. Build it because you have a proven product market fit and you know that you're solving a real big problem that's the fourth one i guess is make sure you're solving a real problem because i've been advising a lot of startups and i have seen a lot of people building the next app that they think will will be the next facebook or the next something something and and some of those do work um but mm -hmm. I think that the safer approach is make sure that you are actually solving a real problem that exists, a real gap um, with a product that you're going to uh, work on because it will take uh, a long time. But these two-year exits are uh, not that frequent. Right. <laughs> so prepare for a longer journey. And then finally, and very importantly, um, enjoy your successes. I know that the destination and, and the journey is long. And if you're obsessed about that end result at the end of the road, you will never enjoy the small successes. So make sure you take a step back and you look back and you appreciate what you built and what you and your team have built and, and say, thank you. Thank you to yourself and to your team. Um, because, um, it, it's important to celebrate even the small successes. Yeah, I think that's very, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that's very, very wise to have, you know, to be grateful for what you've accomplished and have fun with it, considering it's going to be such a long and hard road. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's a good, great place to end. Uh, Najina, thanks again for coming on the show. It was great to have you on. Thank you, Chase. It was my pleasure. Good luck with everything and to all of us. Thank you. Uh, where can people go if they want to learn more about Insurify, like website, social media, and so on? Yes, just go to insurify.com or track us on Facebook and um, Instagram and Twitter. And you'll see um, we've, we've been writing a lot of uh, new things and new trends around COVID as well. Um, so you'll find some very interesting studies in addition to the core product, which is um, comparison shopping for all types of insurance. Great. And you can all also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.